This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Let's just read this section of scripture uh, right from the beginning here. 1 John 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and I'm actually going to be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Okay, everyone, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we're coming to the end of our series in 1 John. And uh, what we're going to try to digest today is this. And and I think what we'll do is we'll actually, this is going to seem like a, a great, an overview of this book more than, uh, I guess more than a, a message just in chapter five, these first five verses. We're actually going to jump all over the place in First John today because what he has to say here is something that is a very common theme in what he's been telling us in his letter, and that is this. What does it mean? This is the question. There's, there's a question I want us to answer, okay? What does it mean to be born of God? All right? So we hear, you hear about being reborn, right? Being born again. Christians talk about being born again, especially if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, right? Be born again. Are you born again, brother? So, so you, but it's a biblical thing. It's a biblical concept. There's a rebirth that happens that uh, the Bible calls a regeneration in John 3, that there is a, an, actual, an actual birthing that takes place when you put faith in Christ, which means you have a new life. You, you, you no longer spiritually have an old life, but you have a new life. It's like you are born all over again. So what does that what does that mean? How does it happen? So how does it happen? And how do we know that it's happened? That's the I think that's the key that we're really going to focus in on today. Because anybody can say, oh yeah, I'm born again. I've, I've, I've experienced the rebirth. But the question that we have to go out from your understanding is, what does that really look like? How do you know? How can you know? Because John says that he writes so that we might have confidence, right? So what are the effects of being born again? What, is, what are the evidences of being born of God? So the beautiful thing is, just like always, we don't have to guess at those answers. <laughs> the scripture tells us what those answers are. John, actually, this book that we've been studying is a book of the Bible that is almost totally devoted to answering those questions that I just presented to you just a second ago. I looked at a, uh, a, an old, old commentary in preparation for this this week. It's about a hundred-year-old commentary um, written by a guy named Robert Law, and the title of this commentary, so the, the, the title of the entire, so the commentary is on the book of 1 John, and it's, the commentary is like a book explaining what the book of 1 John is like verse by verse, and the title of his commentary is this, The Tests of Life. <laughs> 
the tests of life. And I think if we were to get more specific, it would be the tests of the Christian life, of, of being born again. It's a really good title and because I think what it means and, what, and what, what, what Robert Law is saying is that that what John is doing when he wrote his letter is he's providing you and me, he's providing the church with tests or criteria for knowing that we have spiritual life, for knowing if whether or not you really have been born again, right? Because it's one thing to, to think that you have, but he, John's like, I want you to know that you have. That's the, there's, a, there's a big difference here. John's like, you can know. You can really, truly have all the confidence in the world. So today's message is going to basically be kind of an overview, like I said, of his whole letter, because in his letter, he has given us a lot of these things already. In fact, let's start with why did he write this letter? So John tells us often why he writes to us, and he tells us in his gospel, the gospel of John, he tells us at the end in chapter 20 that he writes this, that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, and he tells us all throughout this letter. So this letter is just really short. It's like four pages long, First John is, but all throughout this letter, he tells us why he wrote it. So I want to take them each one by one in the order in which they come, all right? So all the way back in chapter one, we're actually going to read a lot of scripture today, which is my favorite type of sermon, by the way, because I can't, I can't convince you of anything, but God's word certainly can. And that's, that's, that's how faith is generated in a person. Paul says in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so you don't need a motivational speaker. You need the word of God. So we're going to read a lot of scripture today. And a lot of it's going to be coming from John, 1 John. And we're going to be all over this book. So 1 John 1 verse 4 says this. John says, we are writing these things. And I think he's kind of including himself. You know, when it, John says we sometimes because I think he's thinking of himself as one of the apostles. And he's one of, I mean, he is one of the, he's the, he's one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, but he's still kind of referring to, hey, we, we've all been speaking the same thing, right? So he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I, I love, I love that. If you pause and think about John, so John, what's your purpose for writing your letter? So that I can get joy from it. <laughs> I love that because John is saying that he, he is pursuing joy for his own life. One of his, right off the bat, he says, one of my reasons for telling you this is because it brings me great pleasure. It brings me great joy. One of my favorite preachers in the world is John Piper. He built his entire ministry on the, one of the books that he wrote, one of the early books he wrote called Desiring God. He wrote a book called Future Grace and Desiring God. And in those first two books, they may not have been his first two. I think they're pretty old. They wrote them in like the 80s. He talks about this issue of being a Christian hedonist, right? Christian hedonism. So what is hedonism? It's where you're just, you're kind of seeking nothing but pleasure. Like whatever pleases you, that's what you're seeking, right? So John's, John Piper says that, that, and I think this is what John is. I think John, the apostle, is a Christian hedonist. He's starting right off by saying, look, I want, I want the joy of the Lord. That's what I want. And nothing brings me greater joy than seeing people know that they really are born again, know that they really are in the Christian life. And so that's how he begins this, that, hey, you knowing this, you having that confidence is going to make sure that I have joy. And that's a good kind of joy to pursue. We ought to pursue that kind of joy. So that's one reason he says he writes. Chapter 2, if you flip the, flip the page or look across the page, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John is hoping that his letter 
is going to give them, and you and me, the power to overcome sin. He's hoping that we'll be able to read this and know how we might not live a life of sin, right? And part of his method in helping them to overcome sin is to assure them, even in the same sentence, that their failures do not have to be devastating to their Christian walk. When you fail, which you're going to, you can receive forgiveness through confession of your sins and returning to the Father again, and all that is possible through what? Through the one who advocates for us, Jesus, the righteous one. And John says, okay, look, I want you, if you, you, I want you to know that you can overcome sin, but if you, if you do sin, then, then there is one who advocates on your behalf. Just come to him with those sins. Still in chapter 2, verse, down in verse 12 and 13, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So, in other words, John is filled with this hope that the people he's writing to, both then in that day, and then I also probably assume that he, he probably knows that this, these words will carry on to us in our generation, that, that he's hoping that they are truly believers, right? That they are forgiven, that they know God, that they have triumphed over the evil one, that they, that they have overcome the world, that they have, that they have experienced the victory that he's going to say later in chapter 5 that has overcome the world, which is our faith. That, and that's, he's saying, look, I'm writing these things to you because your sins are forgiven. All right? Now, let's, he's, he's going to build on this even more. Verse 21 in the same chapter. I write to you not because you do not know the truth. Okay, so who's he writing to? But he says, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So he's kind of saying the same thing. He's saying, you know what? My letter is not to get you started in the Christian life. Like, if you need to get started, if you're not a Christian and you need to get started, then, then there are other, you know, there are other letters that have been written, there are other accounts. I mean, read, I mean, read my gospel. <laughs> read read, read the, my, my, illust- you know, my, my journal of what I experienced with Jesus because that's going to that's gonna get you in the Christian life. This letter is not to get you in, but to confirm that you're actually in it. This letter is intended to help you confirm you are in it. You are living it. And then again, another one in, verse, in chapter 2. He spends a lot of time in chapter 2 talking about why he writes. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So here is another reason why we know that John wrote this letter, because he's concerned with some false teaching that happens all the time in Christian circles, right? So this letter is meant to protect them from anyone who might come in and lead them down false paths. I mean, maybe they'll come into the church and they'll teach. Usually the church is structured in such a way where that's difficult to do. But usually what happens is, because we don't live our Christian lives here in this meeting, we live our Christian lives everywhere else, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll go to class and learn some things, or you'll talk with this person over here and learn some things, or you'll watch this program over here and learn some things. And there's all kinds of stuff that people might say about Jesus, and John says, look, there's a way for you to know whether or not what's being said about Jesus is true or false. And that's one of my reasons for writing is to help you know and be confident that that the one that you are truly believing in is the Jesus Christ that I saw with my eyes, that I saw crucified, that I saw resurrected, that I followed, that gave me his spirit and of the other apostles to carry this out in the world for the rest of the, uh, for the rest of time. I want you to know this Jesus. 
the real true Jesus. That's, that's, and he says that's one of the reasons he wrote this letter. It's incredible. I don't know if you realize that this letter we're studying has been written for a lot of incredible reasons. There's more. Chapter 5. Flip the page. We're almost, we're almost at the end. I write these, verse, verse 13, verse 13, chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is the one that's the most dominant in his letter. And this is the one that we'll just land on. Most of what is provided in, in here, in what we've just talked about through these reasons for writing, is to provide us tests of really having the Christian life. Like he's, he's saying, hey, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So all the things that I'm saying, is provide, that John is saying, is providing tests so that you'll know that you truly have been born again from, from death to life. So if you were to sum up all of these reasons for John writing 1 John, it might sound something like this. If we just like summarize it. He might be saying, hey, I am writing to you because you're true believers. But there's still deceivers in the world around you. And I want you to be rock solid confident in your ownership of the eternal life that, is, that has been given to you through Christ, through the regeneration of being born again as a child of God so that you are not drawn away after sin and chasing the world. And if you're able to do that, if this letter has that effect, then my joy will be made complete. I think that's the summary of, of, of why John wrote this. So at the heart for his reason of writing this letter is the desire to help people know, look, you're really born again, and you have, you have spiritual life. You really are. You do have eternal life that you can experience here and now, but you have eternal life that's going to be experienced forever, forever. So that's sort of an overview of why, of why he, he wrote this, this letter. Now, I want to consider one more little overview, all right, before we focus in on, on two verses in chapter 5. I think, I think God would like us to look at the totality of, of this book, the book of 1 John, and to consider the impact it has on you every single day. I mean, just to consider the impact it has on you. I mean, it's completely dominated by this whole idea of, like that commentary says, the tests of life or the effects or the evidences of being born again. I mean, and, and, and if you look throughout, so one of the things that you can do if, if you'd like to do this kind of a study is you can look in 1 John and you can look for all of the evidences. So if, if the whole book is dominated by this idea of, of how do I really know, right? What are the evidences that I truly am born again? You can look for them throughout the book of 1 John and just write them down. So that would be a study that you could do. Or I could do it for you. <laughs> and, and we can talk about it today. And so that's what we're going to do. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's 11 of them. So there's a lot. All right? We're going we're gonna to fly through them. And really, truly, they could almost all be boiled down to faith and love, right? I mean, so, however, for the sake of making the sermon a lot longer, let's just spell them all out, right? All 11 of them. So, so here, here we go. Are you ready? We're going to get in a race car here, all right? We're just going we're gonna, to we're gonna drive, drive fast. So, the, so number one, here's, here's the first one. And it comes from 1 John 2. And also 1 John 3. So two, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And chapter 3, verse 24. John says, so these are what we're doing is we're writing down tests, right? How do I know that I've been born again? Here's how you know. Here's one evidence. That those who are born of God 
Keep his commandments. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So we know early on, if you, look, if you think back, we jumped right into this study right after the Ten Commandments, and we talked a lot about God's commandments and how they're not burdensome, how they're just, they're just, commandment, they're just things that God says. Hey, how do, you, how do you know that you're living the life of, of, of Christ? How do you know you're living in, in the, the way God desires? They're, they're not burdensome. You just, you just keep them. You do it. So that's number one. Number two, those who are born of God, John says, walk as Christ walks. So often in the scriptures, in the New Testament, you see the, the, the New Testament writers comparing the Christian life to a walk. They'll say, they'll use the, walk, the word walk as a metaphor for living a certain way. And so John says it like this in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, who? Who? Jesus. That's what he's saying. So if you want to know if you really are born again, then walking, living in the way Jesus lived is actually something that comes kind of easy to you now. It just, it just happens, right? Number three, those who are born of God, so a third evidence, if you're born of God, you don't hate others, but you love them. That's, that's a pretty simple thing. Several scriptures that John uses here. Verse, chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Well, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So it's like you haven't really been born again if, that's, if love is hard for you. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So it's pretty simple. I mean, John says if you don't, if love is difficult for you, well, you're kind of showing that's an evidence that you don't really know God. Chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. So these are, these are evidences. Number four. Those who are born of God don't love the world. So a handful of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to love the world in our online service. Chapter 2, verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's, there, are two ways, there, are, there are two ways to live, right? There are way, there's a way to live that, that the things of the world are more enticing to you. Things of the world are more, become more natural to you to enjoy. Or the things of God are more enjoyable to you. And one, one test or evidence of whether or not you really are born again is... Where do you fall there? Where do you land? Number five, those who are born of God confess the Son, and they have him. They receive him. So they, they confess Jesus, and they have Jesus in their life. So I'll just read a few of the scriptures here. John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Chapter 4, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what does it mean to confess the Son, to confess Jesus? Well, it, it, Jesus, he's easy to talk about. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're born, if you truly are born again, if you are, if you are of the new birth that, that John is talking about here, the way that that's evident to you, the way that you know it and have confidence in it, is that Jesus is actually part of your conversations. Jesus is, it doesn't come unnatural to you to actually speak 
about Je- to confess Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to share your love and your passion, your desire to want to be a follower of Jesus with maybe someone that does not feel that way or think that way. If, that, if that's something that does not come natural, if that's something that is difficult, then this again, these are tests, tests of life. Number six, halfway there. Those who are born of God practice righteousness. All right? Practice. So this, is, this one can be a little confusing. I'll, I'll read the verse first. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, wait a minute, Chris. I'm pretty sure that I've heard you preach a hundred times that there is no way that we can present righteousness on our own that's acceptable to God. Yes, you're correct. When it comes to being saved, when it comes to... When it, and you know what else is correct? We should be practicing righteousness. <laughs> They're both correct. There's a righteousness that God requires for you to be able to live with him in relationship for eternity. You can't produce that. That is a righteousness that only, that is a perfect that's a perfect righteousness that only comes from Christ. Paul says that our righteousness if we try to earn salvation, if we try to do things to earn God's approval, it just looks like filthy rags to him. What we need is the righteousness of Christ through faith, by grace, a free gift through faith that he just then puts on us. So now when God looks at us and we're not just trying to be good, but we're actually saying, look, I could, Jesus is my righteousness. God sees Jesus instead. He sees his righteousness, and that's what makes us welcome in his sight. Now that you have the righteousness of Christ, what ought to happen? You ought to practice righteousness. We ought to pra- So the evidence that you have the righteousness of Christ is that you practice righteousness. You live rightly, as the, I believe Micah says that in the old prophet. You live rightly. You live rightly. That's what John is saying. Number seven, those who are born of God do not make a practice of sinning. Chapter three, verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he who cannot, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So you, you can't do this if you've been born of God. And then he says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God. So here it is. Here, it is evident. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he's kind of always reminding us about love. Chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So here's an issue that John says is is, is important to consider. Look, we know that that there is... That, you know, we said earlier, John said earlier, one of his reasons for writing is to, is to help us to understand that, when we, that, that we, need, we can overcome sin. But when we don't overcome sin, when we do fail, that there is forgiveness available. But John says, look, the practice of sinning ought to be behind you by now. That I, if, 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 if it's easy to continue to sin then we need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror or the uh, long, hard work in the, in the mirror of God's word and ask ourselves, am I truly living in the new birth? Am I truly born again? Am I truly born of God? Because John says that 
this one evidence, one of the evidences that you are is that, is that the practice of sinning is no longer part of your life. You may slip up and sin, but it's not a practice. You ever heard of the two-in-a-row two rule, right? If you're trying to create a good habit, a good habit, you know, and you, you, you want to create good habits, you want to create you know, better practices, better behaviors, we're all going to mess up. We understand that. I tell, we always I teach baseball players this. Everybody makes errors. You aren't going to ever watch a baseball game and see no errors. Rarely will you see that. Those are anomalies, right? Someone's going to make a mistake, whether it's on the board as an error or not. The difference is the great ones don't make two in a row. You know how to, under, you understand, I'm going to fail sometimes. Just don't make two in a row. Don't make, realize, hey, you know what? This, this, I, can, I, can, I can do this. So that's what John is saying. It's not a practice anymore. It happens, you'll slip, but it's no longer a practice. It's not a regular thing. Number eight, those who are born of God have the Spirit of God. So that's the Holy Spirit of God lives in every person who is, who is confessed Profess to be a believer in Christ, who has put faith in Christ, who every person that God has, has made alive again through the new birth has the Spirit of God in him. John says in 3.24, By this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So we know, this is one of the evidences, by the Spirit he's given us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. And this is one that we all know, right? We know, okay, the Holy Spirit lives in me. Here's the question. Do you know the difference he makes? Do you really know the difference he makes? For example, I remember hearing an old preacher, and I don't think it's his original question. I think he may have gotten it from somebody else. But I remember him saying it. It was very, it was very influential in my life, and I'll never forget it. He said this to a whole crowd of, of young people one time when I was listening to him preach. He said, look, I got a question for you. If right now, if you walk out of this room right now, if, you, if, if God decided right here, right now, that the Holy Spirit was going to leave your life, you would no longer have the Spirit of God in you. Would you know it? If you walked out of here today and you just went on with your life, would you recognize that the Holy Spirit no longer is in you? You see, if, if we're unsure, we should think, okay, what difference is he making in my life? How is, what, what is, what is he doing? What is, what is the life of Jesus living in me doing that makes me different? Because John says that one of the evidences that you are born again is that you have the Spirit of God. Number nine, those who are born of God listen and submit themselves to the Word of God and the apostles' teaching, so, such as John. So John's an apostle, and the apostles were the, the first ones to carry on the teachings of Christ. And so John is saying, look, we're eyewitnesses of, of the Messiah, of Jesus, and we're teaching things that Jesus wants us to teach you, and he wants us to pass these down to the next generation and to the next and to the next, and he wants this to continue because this is how the world's going to be saved. If you listen to this, if this is good news to you, then that's pretty good evidence that, that, you're, born, that you're born of God. He says this in chapter 4, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. So he's talking about himself, the apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so Bring this to today, right? Someone's talking about, about the Word of God, giving you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm giving. I'm not an apostle, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a preacher, a pastor. I'm giving you the Word of God, so I am giving you the apostles' teaching right here. The fact that this is good for you, that this is, that this is something that you, are in, that you are cherishing, is an evidence, John says, of being born of God. 
The last two, number 10. Those who are born of God believe that Jesus is the Christ. Look, you got to start there, right? Chapter 5, verse 1, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you just don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Christ, then you're, that's, that's a game breaker. It's a deal breaker. Right? Number 11, those who are born of God overcome the world. And this is one that I want to talk about just for a few minutes before we close. Everyone who has been born of God, John says in chapter 5, verse 4, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, before we, before we kind of conclude and talk about that, I want to say something because I think all of those 11 things that I just gave you all at once can have a negative effect. <laughs> I think there could be a couple of negative side effects of all of those things and you taking all of those in, these tests of life. And I think one of the negative side effects could be that they would overwhelm us with the sense that John is saying, geez, if you're born again, you're pretty much perfect. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're pretty, I mean, you can't, you, you, you don't sin at all, right? There's no defeat in the Christian life. There's no failure. There's no, there's no, I mean, you're, you're overcoming the world. There's only victory and it's, it's evident and all this. And I, think, and I think John is pretty aware that his words could be taken the wrong way. And so he's just as explicit as any other New Testament writer to, to make clear Christians are not sinless. He tells us that when we sin, right, he knows it's going to happen. There is forgiveness. Born-again people will and do screw up. But it does not mean that they are not born again. And it also does not mean that they stop being born again because they screwed up and they're lost all over again. Like, like God, when God gives you a new birth, you're not going to, I mean, you're alive. I mean, you're living that life. You're going to screw up in that life, but, but you're still living that life. You're, you're now, you're, you don't just die, I mean, spiritually, you're alive. It's just a new birth and you messed up. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, listen to how he says this. If we say we have no sin, let me ask you, what tense is that? Like past, present, or future? Yeah, present tense, right? So here, here he's talking present tense. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Oh, so I guess we do sin sometimes. If we confess our sins, again, what tense? Present tense. What's it? Oh, if, if we will, oh yeah, if we do, right? Gotcha, Ashley. What grade do you teach again? <laughs> oh, science. Okay. That's good. Good. If we confess our sin, he is faithful. Present tense. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So John goes into great lengths, I think, to say, look, walking in the light, living as Jesus, you know, walking in the light does not necessarily mean walking flawlessly. Just because it's light out doesn't mean that you won't stumble. I mean, you might, you'll still stumble in the light. I mean, some people stumble a lot in the light, right? The light, walking in the light of Christ doesn't mean that you won't stumble. It doesn't mean you won't fail. But what it means is this, you'll see it. You'll see what caused you to stumble and you'll hate it and you'll confess it and you'll move forward with Christ. That's what it means to walk in the light as opposed to walking in the darkness. So as zealous as John is to make sure we know that, I think he's also just as zealous to make sure that we don't infer something else that's false that, that, that would not be true about his tests of life, and that is this. 
that you can be born again, that, he, that, he's, that God gives you a new birth, and then you can be lost after that. That's a really confusing thing. It's a major theological thing in the, in the differences in the church about the way people think about this. But I really think this book, the book of 1 John, gives us one of the clearest statements in the Bible to help us understand what is happening when it appears a person has abandoned the church or abandoned the Christian brothers and sisters in the Christian life or abandoned God. Because we all know somebody like that, right? Someone who's appeared to be a believer, but then they left. They turned their back on God. You know, what's that about? Like, what, what, what happened there? I mean, it's like a, it's become a popular thing today to see, like, like Christian artists, you know, Christian artists that I used to like. What's the guy's name from Cademan's Call? Derek Webb? Like, un, he's like unconverted or whatever. He's, he's an atheist now. Well, what happened there? I mean, this is a guy that wrote Christian songs, you know, worship songs, led other people to Christ. There are worship leaders who have done this, right? So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a mind bender for us, and we don't, we don't always understand what is actually happening there. I mean, we're, these people looked saved, right? John answers that. John actually has an answer to that. And, and here's what John says in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, you can, all, you can say they, they looked and sounded like us for a long time, maybe for many years. But here's what John says. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Now, this is really clear to me. I, it's not clear to a lot of people. I'd say almost half of the people in the Christian world is probably not that clear to you. But it's really clear to me. I, I see three things here that John is, is giving us to protect us from this misunderstanding. And the first thing is this, is that those who seem to be born again and then left, right? Some, they, they look like they're born again. They're leading people to Christ. They may be even preaching and teaching, writing songs, things like that. But then they just leave. I'm an atheist now. I leave. Well, what's John say about that? They were never born again. They were never of us. They went out from us, he said, but they were not of us. But wait a minute, John. They looked like us. They sounded like us. They're, they knew more about Christ than I did, right? And, but, the, but John's saying, look, the explanation here is not that they lost. you got to understand. It's not that they lost their new birth. They just never had it. They never had it. It, it was... It was, it was something, it was something, something God did not do something in them that God needs to do. Number two, I think he's showing us that those who are truly born again will persevere to the end. Look at the second part of this verse. They would have continued with us, he says. That's one of the evidences. Like, look, the way you know that they weren't with us is that they didn't continue. It's, it's like, look, endurance is not the cause of new birth. Like some people, some people I think assume that, boy, endure, endure, and when you get to the end, man, it's a good thing you endured because now you're saved. That's not the way, that's backwards, right? The new birth is the cause of your endurance. That's, that's what John is saying here. And that's, that's the scripture. It's not me. That's John saying that. That if they had been of us, then they would have continued. The fact that they went out, that they didn't continue, shows, well, they weren't of us. They weren't of us. And I can't explain it. I can't explain why this person seems so adamantly for Christ and now he doesn't. All I can tell you is they weren't really of us. They weren't really of us. And the third thing is this, real quick. God often makes really clear who the false Christians are in the church by their eventual rejection of the truth of not just the truth of God, but also the people of God. And it's possible many of you even lost friends that once were really good friends in the church, right? The very last part of this verse. But they went out 
that it might become plain. So one of the, one of the things that God wants to show you is, look, this is, this is very clear that they were not of us. It became plain. It became plain then in John's day, and it still becomes plain today. These, are, these, these things are still true today. If you recall one of those tests of life that we talked about in those 11, that list of 11, in chapter 4, verse 6, was that those who truly know God listen to the teachings of the apostles, right? They love it. They cling to it. He says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, right? So they, it's something. So what, what happens here, Jesus talks about this, actually, in Luke chapter 8. These people listen to the teaching of God. They embraced it. They, they heard it, right? Jesus talks about sometimes when the word of God goes out, it's like throwing seed on the ground. And sometimes when that seed hits the ground, it springs up really fast. And it sprang up. So people hear the word of God, it springs up with joy, and it looks like they're truly born again. To us, we can, it, to us, it looks like that. But then what happens? Hard times come, the cares and riches, uh, the cares of, of this life come, you know, something happens, maybe a disaster happens in their life, or maybe it's good stuff. Maybe it's the riches and pleasures of life that swept them away. And in doing so, it revealed that they never had truly been born again. That's what it reveals. If you want to know what it reveals, that's what it reveals. And it's an unfortunate thing. It's a sad reality, but it is a reality. It's a biblical reality. So now in the context of that long overview, so that's my introduction to today's sermon, okay? In that context, <laughs> I'm actually getting ready to end. In the context of that long overview to 1 John, let's read again verses 3 and 4 in chapter 5. And what I want you to notice is that verses 3 and 4 are linked together like a chain, like, like, like if you were to take a a link here, and a link there, and then a third one. If I can do a third one, right? And do a third. So there's, there's, it's a three-chain link, okay? So link one is this. They're, they're all linked together. So link one is this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, all right? So this is the love of God that we keep. So we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So link two, okay, says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So it's connected to that first one. And then link three, and this is the victory that overcomes the world. So we overcome the world, and this is, how do we do that? This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So link one, love of God is expressed in what? Obedience to his commands. With a spirit, an attitude that doesn't act like it's a big burden to live as God desires, right? I mean, that's an evidence of that. I mean, if we're, if we're living as though it's, this is a burden to live the way God desires, it might be an evidence that you're not really born of God. John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It doesn't feel like a burden to you. It's a mark of love for you that, that, that you just live in joyful obedience, not begrudgingly. So then that's linked to the second thing he says, which is this, the basis of this unbegrudging obedience to, the, to, to God's word and to God's commands is the power of this new birth that he has given you to be able to overcome the world. Four. Right? The word for builds on what he said before. Everyone who has been born of God does what? They overcome the world. So our love for God then obeys God freely and joyfully. Why? Because in this new birth, the curse that the world has on it is broken and the curse of the world loses its power in your life. Now, don't misunderstand this. It does not mean that you don't still experience the effects of the curse of this world. We know that's true. We're living in the middle of that right now. But here's what it means. It means that the curse of the world has lost its impact on you. It, no it does not remove your joy. 
And if it is removing your joy, pause and ask yourself, this is not the way a, a, a person born of God responds. When the world loses its attraction and its influence in you because of the new birth that God has done in you, then, then you'll know, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm walking in this. And in the last link, this world defeated, this overcoming the world, this defeating power that we have over the world, it comes in one way, and that is our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So the train of thought goes like this. And then we're going to respond. We have communion scattered out everywhere, don't we? So, so when, we, uh, when we respond in worship here in a minute, we invite all of you to, to share in taking communion and um, taking the, 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 they're together. So the little wafer and the juice is together. Um, and you can just do it on your own time as, as you're ready during the song that we sing here in response to God's word. Uh, Just uh, uh, take time, and, and uh, Paul says to consider, consider your own life and consider your, your, um, where you are before you, uh, before you do this. Jesus says do this um, in remembrance of him. And, um, and so pause and, and, and uh, recognize that uh, there is um, a, a seriousness in this uh, sacrament that we partake in as we uh, take communion together during these last couple songs. But to summarize where we've been and that train of thought, the new birth happens as we are brought into contact with the living word of God, the gospel. It happens. The first effect of this new birth is that we see and receive God and his son and his work and his will as something that is absolutely valuable and beautiful for our lives. That's faith. And then faith, this faith that you have, overcomes the world. That is, it overcomes the enslaving power that the world has that makes you think that everything in this world is the greatest thing in the world, is, the, is your greatest treasure. So faith breaks that. It breaks the curse of the allurement of the world. And by doing that, this faith then leads us into obedience with, of God with, with joy and freedom. And God's word and his commands, they look beautiful to you and not burdensome. And, and that's what new birth is. Look, to a lot of people, that's not what they see when they, look, when they look at the Bible, when they consider the Bible. I mean, just to be really honest, what's happening there? A lot of people don't understand. They, don't, they think it's foolishness. They think it's boring. Why? Well, the blinders are still on. When you're born again, the blinders have come off. And this is something that's absolutely beautiful for you. And John says that the curse of this world and what it offers is, is nothing but temporary. I know it can look so daggone wonderful at face valuable, value at times. It's so enticing sometimes just want to go along with what the world is thinking and what they're doing and what's happening and what they're talking about because it sucks you in and it just drains the life out of you, the life that you're meant to have in the new birth of Christ. And John says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So let's pray together and then we will... Uh, respond in, uh, in song and uh, in communion and offerings. God, thank you so much for the way you speak to us in your word, the way that you make 
life in Christ real for us today in this in uh, in our daily lives in the way that we are going about things in uh, in our lives individually. But God, I thank you so much for the way that you. Um, bring us together and you, you, you teach us as a community what it looks like to be the church. And I, and I pray that people understand that, that, that this life, one of the things that makes it not so burdensome is that we don't have to live it alone. Even though many of us maybe have felt very alone over the past several months, it's definitely not something that we have to live alone. And that's why it's so beautiful to be able to hear voices sing together in community, in harmony. Even if it's not in harmony or off key, it's still great to hear together. And um, and I pray that, God, that, that we would find strength in that. We would find great strength in that. And we would find great strength in the, the accountability that comes through having the relationships of brothers and sisters. As John writes to the church at that time, as his little children, and I believe that he really truly looks at us today as people that are like his little children, and he desires for us to grow up in a family with God because we know that that's what your that's that's what your people are they're a family that will be together forever in eternity. So God now as we sing and as we respond may the words that we sing and may may our hearts just rise with incredible gladness of the words that we're about to sing here of what you have done with our sin and what we can do in response. For it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.